podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty well. Our niece was just born. Yay. Uh, and she's adorable. We haven't had a chance to go and meet her yet because she's still very young and mom's very tired. Um, she's a very cute potato. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I am apprehensively excited to talk about today's movie and it's happy because I'm I really like this movie. Mm-hmm, I know it's one of your favorites. Yeah. I'm apprehensive because I did a lot of historical research and I'm always worried with how complex history can be <laughs> that I'm going to get something wrong. Yeah. And people will be upset. Well, we haven't gotten a negative comment in 45 episodes, so <laughs> we're doing all right so far, I think. Yeah. What does that feel like, batting average? Like, I don't know. 45 for 45? Like, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know how baseball works. <laughs> so, speaking of the research that you've done, uh, what do you have to tell us about today, Sarah? Do you want to tell us what we're watching first? Oh, that might be a good idea. We are watching The Black Cat from 1934, starring... Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff together for the first time in one picture from Universal Studios. I love this movie, and not just because it has cat in the name. <laughs> it has surprisingly little to do with its ostensible source material. In the in the credits, you know, on the title screen of this movie, it says that it's, you know, from Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat. And we've seen two adaptations of The Black Cat, I think two, on the list so far as segments in the two different versions of Unheimliche Geschichten. So this is a feature film version, but it really is just using the title. And the rest of its inspiration comes from a variety of different sources, including a historical backdrop rooted in the history of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in World War One. Yeah. So that's sort of what we figured might be useful for listeners to know a bit about as context for this movie. Rather than yet another synopsis of Edgar Allan Poe's life and the black cat. Yeah, because it really has nothing to do with this movie. Exactly. There is a cat, mm-hmm. but yeah. So before I can really explain Austria-Hungary, mm-hmm. I really need to briefly explain why they came together in the first place. Yeah. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this whole area, commonly known as the Balkans, because of the Balkan mountain range, it's a multi-ethnic area. You have some Germans, you have some Hungarians, Czechs, Croatians, Serbians, Polish, even some Italian people. There's a lot of people in here. Mm-hmm. And that causes some tension. Since, you know, approximately... 1278. Okay. <laughs> Austria was ruled by the House of Habsburg. Yes. Which is a German family. Mm-hmm. They were also, I think, the Holy Roman Emperors for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. A very big family. Mm-hmm. Big deal family. Mm-hmm. So at first it was just the Duchy of Austria, but their rule continued as that little duchy grew into the Austrian Empire by the 1800s. Mm-hmm. 
included in this empire were individual, I'll say countries, but they weren't really considered countries in that kind of way. They did have a little bit of independence in terms of their governments, but for the most part they were under imperial rule. These types of countries include the Kingdom of Croatia, the area where Serbia is, the Duchy of Bohemia, and others, including the Kingdom of Hungary. Yeah, and it's important to remember that in this sort of time period, nations and the nation-state as we think of it were only just starting to really become a thing. It was still very much like the monarch idea, or like, I'm a duke, I own this land, you pay your money to me. Yeah, and... Aristocratic? Yes. Yeah. Of course, if the Austrian Empire is an empire, an emperor is a monarch that rules over kings. So it makes sense that you'd have kingdoms and other countries within the larger nation of the Austrian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, you still see this in, like, the British Empire and stuff. Yeah. And if you still are having a little bit of difficulty, listener, kind of think of it as, like, provinces or states within the larger country. Yeah, or um, the way that... In the nation of the United Kingdom, there are individual countries, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Anyways, continue, Sarah. (laughs) Hungary's system of government had this separate parliament, but they did have a a monarch head from the imperial government of the Austrian Empire. Mm -hmm. This was disrupted with the Hungarian Revolution of 1848 when the country revolted against the Habsburg monarchy, calling for reforms like all sections of parliament should be elected, including ministries. There should be freedom of the press. Uh, But kind of most significantly, especially in the Balkan area, is universal equality, but an explicit push for ethnic and minority rights. During this time of 1848 to 1849, there would be similar revolutions in neighboring countries like Serbia, but none would really gain support for independence, including Hungary's, as the ethnic populations were fairly dispersed across this geographic region. Right. The Austrian monarchy played this disbursement to their advantage by doing a divide-and-conquer strategy, promising one thing to one group and having conflicting promises to another group, and basically stoking the existing hostile feelings between ethnic groups. Right. Sort of playing them all against one another so that they would never be quite powerful enough to rise up against them. Exactly. The Hungarian Revolution ultimately failed in 1849, but it signaled and continued the decline of the Austrian power across the empire. This decline would continue due to various wars with Russia and like other areas, and eventually, in order to kind of bolster its own power and influence, in 1867, Austria approached Hungary for the Austro-Hungarian Compromise. The reason they approached Hungary was they had continued kind of being the loudest source of dissatisfaction with Austrian rule, and this compromise offered them a distinct government, but the security of a shared military force and foreign policy with Austria. Right. The group seeking independence recognizes they can't quite go it alone, so you reach this kind of thing where they have their own internal policy but external policies still rely on the larger entity. 
Yeah, and it makes sense because these countries are actually quite small in comparison to, like, Russia, which is next door, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so Hungary and Austria would each have their own prime minister and separate parliaments, laws, economies, but they would have a head of state known as the Emperor King, and this Emperor King would have executive powers over their shared military force. Mm -hmm. And this military would show this force in various conflicts with, again, Russia and also some more internal conflicts, but also with the 1908 annexation of Bosnia, mm -hmm. which would upset the Serbian ethnic group. Yes. Yeah. So with this newfound self-rule, Hungary began using nationalist rhetoric. And you can kind of see why they might start to do this when you've always had this strong German influence around you and you've been trying to make it out on your own. Finally, you have the power, so you're going to be like, yeah, Hungary! Ugh. <laughs> Except other ethnicities, like Croatian, Serbian, Slovenian, etc., wanted to share and celebrate their nationalities as well. So a lot of nationalism in these weird little pockets, that hostility between ethnic groups keeps growing and growing. Most of these combative celebrations of nationality took the form of language rights, okay. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see this specifically in the Hungarian Minority Act of 1868, which gave minorities individual rights to language in offices, non-state-run schools, courts, and municipalities. But it was kind of seen as just a, a fake gesture because Hungarian was still largely promoted, but also German was, like, the national language still. Yes. Yeah. So how did things go horribly wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned how in 1908 Bosnia was annexed, mm -hmm. um, and it was actually going to be gaining some limited constitutional independence by 1910. Mm -hmm. So all those nationalist feelings I mentioned before, um, yeah, those were getting way more intense, leading to organizations like the Serbian Black Hand, mm -hmm. a terrorist group dedicated to Serbian independence and unification. Foreign relations were already escalating and strained with continual threats from Russia moving closer and closer to Balkan states. And in 1914, heir to the Austria-Hungary Empire, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and oh, his yeah. wife mm -hmm. were uh, taking a trip to Bosnia to see, you know, what what is this new country kind of creating for the empire when they were assassinated by the Black Hand. Mm -hmm. And this because it's the heir to the empire, this was seen as both a, a terrible terrorist attack, mm -hmm. but also a push for Serbian independence. I suppose you could say it ultimately led to that, because it sparked World War I. Yes. The Austro-Hungarian army would largely follow Germany's lead in the war, um, while also dealing with its own continental fronts. Yeah. For example, um, because of this Serbian attack that sparked World War One, the army marched into Serbia. And this was disastrous for the army. Hardly any ground was gained and a ton of people died. They would be a bit more successful at the Russian front, even as Czech soldiers and civilians would join against the Austro-Hungarian army. Mm. 
Towards 1915, Italy too would start fighting against the Austro-Hungarian army with ethnic Italians in Austria-Hungary, uh, now torn for loyalty. The general consensus, as you can kind of see from this trend, is that this was the time for these small Balkan territories to earn their independence along ethnic lines. Mm. And with this internal breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germany was often having to support its ally rather than make progress on their own fronts. Any successful battles won by the Austro-Hungarian army would done so with the direct support of the German army. The dissolution of the empire into autonomous countries happened rather quickly at the end of World War I, including another revolution from Hungary known as the Aster Revolution. Led by Count Mihail Karoli, this revolution seceded Hungary from Austria to become the first Hungarian People's Republic, mm -hmm. interestingly enough, on Halloween of 1918. It would only last a year before several more revolutions, eventually settling to the renewed Kingdom of Hungary in 1920. Of all of the countries that fought for their independence and won, Czechoslovakia was kind of the most successful at, like, maintaining that. Mm. Um, they gained their independence in 1918, a couple days before that Hungarian revolution. And while it had one of the calmest transitions, it still was dealing with unrest and agitation from the still-existing multi-ethnic population of Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians, and Germans. I emphasize the still existing because, yes, you want these countries drawn by ethnic lines, but it's you're still a, a bunch of people all mixed together. You can't just force people to leave. I mean, I guess you can because in history we've seen that happen, but just because you've made this this country based on ethnic lines doesn't mean that all of the Hungarians are now gone. Like, they don't mm -hmm. just magically leave. But kind of thinking about this as well, it helped me understand the world's complacency, I guess, as Hitler rose to power and began expanding Germany's borders, because perhaps they might have seen it as a reunification of these torn-up pieces of, of, of a bygone empire. And that was certainly the way that Hitler sold it to everyone, right? Nazi Germany took over Austria, and it was seen as a reunification. That was the exact same line used when Hitler took Czechoslovakia. It was just, hey, this was our land before, so we're just taking it back. And it really wasn't until they marched into Poland that everyone went, wait a second. Yeah, and actually Czechoslovakia had its own independence until being taken over by Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course now that nation's divided even further on ethnic lines because it has since split up into the Czech Republic and Slovakia, two different nations. Yeah, yeah. Even in all the research that I did, the Czechs and Slovakians were all, like, I, I guess Slovaks, were all, like, tied in together. So they've been mixed for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised seeing the further division. Mm -hmm. We sort of briefly mentioned it when we first talked about Bela Lugosi's early life in the Dracula episode, but um, he had been forced to flee Hungary after the counter-revolution in Hungary in 1919 by the communists because Lugosi had supported 
Mikhail Karolai's revolution, and in the counter-revolution, Karoli was forced out of the country and into exile, and in interviews with Lugosi, even through into the 1930s, Lugosi would go out of his way to bring these politics up because he was a supporter of this idea that Karoli was still the rightful ruler of Hungary uh, and this government in exile that would one day sort of come back, which, of course, it never did. Yeah, it stayed the kingdom of Hungary up until 1948. Mm -hmm. The reason all of this background is important to this film in addition to the, I guess, connection with Lugosi being from Hungary and its story connections uh, to this film as well, have a lot to do with the director of this film. Horror was in a sort of precarious place in 1934. Mm -hmm. The Invisible Man had been a huge hit for Universal in 33, showing there was still legs in the genre, but the growing trend of moral outcry over the contents of these movies significantly increased financial risk with their production. As it was in the earliest days of the genre, literary adaptation was seen as the easiest way to head off critics with respectability as your defense. Mm. And, as in those early days, Edgar Allan Poe was a surefire ticket to that literary cachet, and so Carl Lemley Jr. commissioned a film to be made out of Poe's The Black Cat initially to be written by Tom Kilpatrick and Dale Van Every and directed by E.A. DuPont. This effort never got off the ground, and in 1934, it was superseded altogether when a director named Edgar G. Ulmer approached Lemley with what he called, quote, a film that could not possibly fail, unquote. <laughs> uh, despite agreeing to continue using The Black Cat as a title, this film would have a completely new story and team Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi in one picture for the first time. Lemley was sold and gave Ulmer unprecedented freedom to create his film. Edgar Georg Ulmer was born in Olomouc in 1904, a Czech city that at the time he was born was located in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The city was ethnically Czech, had been in the territory of Czechoslovakia for a very, very long time, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. But the majority of the upper class in the city had always been German, and German mm -hmm. culture, therefore, had always been the most heavily promoted. Ulmer was in his teens during the First World War, uh, so he didn't serve in the war. Um, and after it, he moved to Vienna in Austria as a young man to study architecture and philosophy. He worked as a set designer for Max Reinhardt's theater company and then apprenticed as a set designer on the films of F.W. Murnau. He would go on to work on the sets for Der Golem in 1920, Metropolis in 1927, and then moved to Hollywood to work on the sets for F.W. Murnau's Sunrise uh, when Murnau did that film. He would then stay in Hollywood working on two-reeler western movies. His first feature film as a director was Damaged Lives in 1933, an exploitation film about venereal disease produced for the Canadian Social Health Council. <laughs> that is the best piece of trivia. <laughs> the educational 
purpose of the film allowed for a more frank treatment of subject matter like sex and adultery than allowed in normal movies, and the film featured a lengthy nude scene depicting a group of women skinny dipping. This was sort of a common way to get around the censors at the time, was to produce educational pictures um, about taboo topics so that you could show those taboo topics. This will um, come up again later. Yeah. Produced for a paltry $18,000, the picture was a great success financially. <laughs> you know, because it had naked women in it. So this success is what sort of put Ulmer in the position where he could pitch a movie to Carl Lemley. Ulmer's pitch to Lemley for a version of The Black Cat starring both Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff was successful. Lugosi was in low regard with Lemley, as we've covered in previous episodes, but he was still very popular with audiences, and so Lemley could see the potential box office in uniting the two stars. Um, his only real stipulation being that Karloff have top billing and be the higher promoted of the two in the hierarchy of the film. Ulmer was granted essentially free reign to create the film. He was kept under control by the fact that he was only given a budget of $96,000 and a shooting schedule of only two weeks. Is that a small budget and short shooting time in comparison to the other films we've seen? That's about a third of, say, what Frankenstein was made for and about half the shooting schedule. Okay. So the idea being, you know, you have creative freedom. Uh, you can kind of go and do whatever story, film it however you like, but you aren't going to be able to run away off the rails too much because you don't have a lot of time and money. Mm -hmm. This was especially important because the period where he was going to be shooting, the Lemleys were going to be out of town on vacation. <laughs> Ulmer judged Poe's Black Cat story to not be a story that was possible to effectively dramatize on film because so much of its conflict is internal psychological conflict and the actual, you know, visual events aren't really all that much. And we can concur with that description because we've seen it twice and it's not compelling. Yes. So he decided to create an all-new story while continuing to use the title for its publicity value. Ulmer's inspiration would be a story that he heard while he had been working on The Golem about a fortress that had been shelled during World War I whose commander went mad from seeing all the death around him and prisoners from the assault who weren't released until years after the war was over. Ulmer used these stories and others he had heard of the Hungarian experience during the war to craft a horror story based around the trauma that the war had left upon people. For his villain, Ulmer named him after the chief set designer that he had worked under on the Golem, famed German expressionist architect Hans Pulzig. Ulmer used what he had learned under Pulzig in terms of architecture and design to build a visual look for the film that would give it the appearance of having twice the budget it really did <laughs> uh, by merging expressionist and modernist design sensibilities. Cool. However, for personality, the fictional Pulzig in the movie was actually based on the life and works of occultist Aleister Crowley. Really? Yes. Our good friend, Alistair, Alistair Crowley. Crowley. 
Bela Lugosi was cast as the film's protagonist, um, opposing Karloff's character, Vitis Verdegast, a Hungarian war veteran. Lugosi was himself a veteran, having served as an infantryman in the Austro-Hungarian army and rising to the rank of captain during the war. Black Cat was Bella's first film since International House from a year earlier, uh, a comedy that he had filmed concurrently with Night of Terror. He was somewhat desperate for work, having not done a film for 12 months, uh, which is why he agreed to work alongside Karloff, whom he was resentful of. This animosity had begun when Lugosi bailed from the role of Frankenstein's monster, which is when the downturn in his career had begun. And of course, Karloff had broken through with that role, and his star had really only risen since then. Karloff, despite his assumed name, was not Austrian, like his character, but English, and had not served in World War I because of his poor health. We last saw Karloff in The Ghoul, a film that had been something of an act of rebellion against Universal Studios. Lemley had responded by raising Karloff's salary and granting him the permission to work for other studios so long as it was in non-horror roles. Since then, he had appeared in the RKO war movie The Lost Patrol and the 20th Century Pictures costume drama The House of Rothschild before returning to Universal for this horror vehicle. Lugosi resented Karloff's success and his ability to get good non-horror roles. He was mistrustful of Karloff and believed that the English actor would attempt to upstage him in their scenes together. Karloff, for his part, didn't have a high opinion of Lugosi either. <laughs> uh, he believed that his rival could not act. Oh no! And simply relied on his charm and his accent more than any real performing ability because a true actor would have been able to make something of Frankenstein's monster, and Lugosi had simply relied on playing variations on Dracula over and over again. Those, uh, those are some harsh words back and forth. Mm-hmm. Despite this animosity, filming actually went more or less smoothly, as the two of them developed, if not friendship, then at least a mutual respect for each other's work as actors. Seeing their rivals craft up close for the first time helped them to better understand the other man and what he was doing in his acting. That being said, Lugosi found Karloff's insistence on breaking for mid-afternoon tea every day annoying. That is actually adorable. For his part, Ulmer found it difficult to balance between the performance styles of his two leads, Karloff being very understated, and Lugosi trending towards overacting. He ultimately found that the key was in editing, holding longer on Karloff's shots, and cutting away from Lugosi to reaction shots more often. Basically, a little bit of Lugosi goes a long way, and Karloff, you want to hold on so that it sort of breathes. Mm -hmm. Even with uh, both Lugosi and Karloff in this picture, the film still finds room for that 1930s horror film trope of a young, newlywed couple, uh, although Ulmer found thematic use for them in his story. They are played by David Manners and Jacqueline Wells. The last time we saw Manners, it was two years ago in The Mummy, and he's done eight pictures in the intervening time, including The Death Kiss with Lugosi and Edward Van Sloan. 
This is the last time we're going to be seeing David Manners on the list, as he would retire from film in 1936 to act solely on stage, and then he would retire from acting altogether in 1953 to paint and write philosophy while living with his partner, playwright Bill Mercer. Good for him. His romantic co-star in Black Cat was born Jacqueline Brown in 1914. When she started her career on stage, she would be billed as Diane Duval, but when she started acting in film, she used Jacqueline Wells. Under this name, she appeared in around 50 films for Universal over 17 years. From 1936 to 39, she was married to Walter Brooks, a writer, and in 1941, she jumped ship and signed to Warner Brothers, who wanted her to move up to being an A-picture actress, and felt that the name Jacqueline Wells was too associated by audiences with the B-movies she made for Universal. So, she changed her name again to Julie Bishop, choosing that name because it already matched the monograms on her luggage. <laughs> um, Practical. Yeah, and it is under this name of Julie Bishop that she went for the rest of her life and career and is more commonly known. The Black Cat was made under the Jacqueline Wells name uh, back in that part of her career. Omer's relative freedom with the film's production came to an end when Carl Sr. and Carl Jr. screened the rough cut of The Black Cat and were alarmed at the horrors present in the film. <laughs> it's a horror movie. Of course there's horrors present. There are conflicting reports over the scenes that were ordered cut, as they were all destroyed in the standard practice of the time. Um, so we don't really know for sure what was cut from the movie. We just have kind of what people say was cut, you know, second, third-hand reports. But they may have included... Lugosi's character raping Wells's character, Wells's character transforming into the black cat, Karloff's character being seen on screen being skinned alive and walking around with skin hanging off of his body, an appearance of actual Satan, the gruesome death of the titular cat, scenes clarifying that the Satanists in the film are of German nationality, Similarities between the satanic ritual in the film and actual religious ceremonies from uh, real religions. Scenes that suggested homosexual themes in the film. And a line referring to Czechoslovakians as people who devour their young. Oh my god. <laughs> so again, we don't know how many of those are real or true. We just, that's what's reported to have been cut. Begrudgingly, Ulmer cut several scenes, um, which may or may not be the ones I just listed off. He also did extensive reshoots, downplaying the film's most brutal sequences and making them more symbolic or in shadows or suggested rather than shown outright, and also making Lugosi's character more of a protector of Wells's character than a threat. However, he also took the time while doing the reshoots to add several new scenes, including those which showed Karloff's character to be a necrophiliac, in addition to being a Satanist. <laughs> um, and many of the film's most questionable material was coded well enough to avoid the cutting room floor. Upon its release, the film would be banned in three countries, uh, in Italy and in Finland for creating horror, 
accurate. And in Austria, for its portrayal of an Austrian officer as a traitor and criminal, and so offending Austrian national pride. American critics were unkind to the film on release, which was called, quote, foolish, and criticized for, quote, piling on the agony too thick. Uh, that being said, audiences loved it. It was Universal's biggest hit of 1934, taking in $236,000 on its $96,000 budget. Ulmer was right, it was a sure thing. <laughs> However, he would not be rewarded for his effort. Oh. During filming, he had begun an affair with his script supervisor, Shirley Alexander, who at the time was married to producer Max Alexander, who was Carl Lemley Sr.'s nephew. What are you doing? Shirley divorced Max to marry Edgar Ulmer, and so the director found himself blacklisted from Hollywood, and the two of them ended up moving out to New York to create low-budget independent films. Uh, which, I will say, would eventually become very greatly critically respected, despite their Poverty Row origins. Okay. Still, what are you thinking? Yeah. Don't sleep with the boss's daughter, or the boss's nephew's wife. Yeah. So how are we watching this film? Well, uh, The Black Cat is available on DVD from the Universal Vault series, and is also available to rent on YouTube and the Microsoft Video Store. The YouTube version is on the Scream Scene playlist. Great. If you would like to watch along, you can find that playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You will have to pay to rent it, but trust me, it is worth it. It's a $5 rental, I think. Yeah, soup's cheap. Until then, we will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching The Black Cat from 1934. See you on the other side, everybody. everybody to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Black Cat from 1934 with Karloff and Bella Lugosi. <laughs> yeah, I think this is maybe the first time we've seen it as just Karloff. Yeah, he's he's so famous now that they only have to use his last name to credit him by. I think he was the second actor in Hollywood that got to uh, have that honor. Uh, the first being Greta Garbo, who is commonly credited just as Garbo. Nice. What did you think of the movie, Ben? I really enjoyed it. Uh, this is, I think, my second or third time seeing it. I will say that knowing that it had reshoots and re-edits and things cut out of it definitely informed my viewing of it this time. Okay. Where I think it's something that is almost kind of obvious in hindsight. Once you know that that's something that's been done to the film, you start picking up on sort of where the pieces in the jigsaw puzzle don't quite fit anymore because of it. But that's maybe something I can go into a bit later uh, after we've done a plot summary. What did you think of the film, Sarah? 
I really enjoyed this movie. I know you do. Yeah. There were points where I was like, yes, <laughs> yelling at the screen, or the TV, rather. Uh, yeah, just the use of shadow, the acting. Mm-hmm. Like, this might be David Manners' best performance that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's not very different from his previous performances. But it's the best iteration for him. Yeah. Yeah, I really like this movie. Mm-hmm. So what's it about? It is about Peter and Joan Allison is getting it? caught up in a chess match between two frenemies? Yeah. <laughs> so Peter and Joan Allison are newlyweds fresh on their honeymoon, traveling through Hungary. Due to a mix-up, Vitus Vertigast, who is Lugosi, joins them in their train compartment, where he shares that he is returning to his homeland after being a prisoner of war in Russia. He's lost his wife and daughter. He suspects that they've either passed away or that, you know, he, he, we don't quite gather the whole story at this point, but because he's been away for so long, at least 15 years, it's him kind of coming home and he's traveling to his friend, Hjalmar Polzig's house. They all happen to get off at the train at the same stop and they grab the same bus to get them to where they're going. And it is pouring rain. Just cats and dogs out there, (laughs) you know? As the driver of the bus is sharing details of the countryside's gruesome history back in the war, the road gives way uh, because of all the rain and they crash. Um, Now the driver has died in the crash, but... Vitus, his servant, and the Allisons all survive, and luckily, Pulsig's house is nearby, so they can walk there and take shelter. Yes, and in fact, Pulsig's house was part of what the driver was sort of letting them know about on a, in a tour guide kind of way, because it was built on the ruins of Fort Mamarush, which was the site of this massive battle back in World War I times. In addition to being built on this old military fort, uh, it should be also said that it looks like Frankenstein's castle if it was designed by Howard Rourke. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So Joan was injured in the crash. When they bring her in to the house, Vitus, who apparently is a doctor, gets started on stitching up her wound. And when Polzig meets her, he's completely enraptured by her. Vitus was as well when they met on the train, but it was more of this protective fatherly nature, whereas Polzig is definitely not. Yeah. From here, there's kind of two layers of this story. The first being Vitus and Polzig going into their backstory. We hear how Polzig and Vitus were part of the same unit. Polzig was actually leading the unit uh, in the battle at this site that he that Polzig has built his house on, but he gave the unit away to the Russians so he could live, and then that's how Vitus was captured. So there's that kind of backstabby feeling going on, but there's also the fact that they were romantic rivals. That's perhaps giving a bit too much credit to Polzig, because Vitus was married and had a daughter, and he claims that Polzig stole them once he was taken as a prisoner of war. Yeah, the inference is that Polzig told Vitus's family that he was dead. Yes. Um, as part of going through this backstory, we learn that Vitus's wife, Karin, has died, and Polzig has her embalmed and displayed in the basement. 
with a bunch of other women. Vitus doesn't see the other women. No. All he sees is Karen. And then he's told that his daughter also died. So that's kind of the, I guess, top layer narrative. And then there's a second narrative where they literally play chess, but there's also this kind of um, strategizing, metaphoric playing of chess with the Allisons' lives, where Vitus is trying to protect them, especially Joan, and Polzig wants to use Joan in a satanic ritual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the Allisons are in danger, but they get fully kidnapped, I guess you could say, with Joan being locked away and Peter thrown into a pit. As Joan is locked away, we see Vitus come in and kind of tell her, like, you have to be brave, we're in danger, whatever. So we get reaffirmed that he is not a villain. And then also while she's locked away, a woman walks in and her name is Corin. We, the audience, have already kind of been let in on this, but Joan realizes that Vitus's daughter is still alive, and she's actually Polzig's wife, and Karen explains how Polzig married her mom. When the mom died, he then married her, and there's a whole lot of grossness right up in there. Yep, and it seems like it's only scratching the surface of a lot of the, like, implied grossness in this movie, too. Yeah. So with Joan knowing the secret, Polzig gets really upset when he walks in and sees these two women meeting each other. And Karloff does a, a fantastic job. I don't think he even says anything in this scene. But he comes in, locks the door behind him. Karin leaves because she's scared and he follows and we hear Karin screaming and the door slowly close. And that's the last we see of Karin alive yeah. in the movie. And it's worth saying that it's not just um, Joan learning that Karin's alive, it's that Joan also tells Karin that her father is alive, and Karin learning that, that kind of seals her fate. Yeah. The time for the satanic ritual has arrived, and Joan is brought in to be a sacrifice. During the ritual, there is a distraction, and that's when Vitus can go in and rescue her. As they are escaping, she tells him of Karin, and as they're kind of leaving into the basement... We find Karin murdered and on an embalming table. Vitus is inconsolable, understandably, and Joan is horrified, also understandably. Polzig follows them in and somehow the door gets locked, but he and Vitus fight. Eventually Polzig is put into handcuffs on this kind of torture device thing. This leftover prop from Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah. Vitus tells him how he's going to skin him alive. Joan is screaming intermittently because of these horrific events. Peter manages to get out of his pit. He scuffles with some people on the way. And Peter tries to get into this room to get to Joan. He mistakes Vitus for a villain and shoots him. But Vitus is alive long enough to ignite the dynamite underneath the house that's left over from the military fort. Uh, and there's just enough time for Peter and Joan to get out. And they are saved. Um, then we have a bit of an ellipsis to them being back on the train heading for Vienna. And <laughs> I forgot to mention, Peter's a mystery writer. He, and he's quite proud of this. And he reads a review of his newly released novel where the critic says that it's far too fantastic and he should calm down the imagination. Yeah. So a little bit of a ha-ha with the end. Yes. So the black cat is a really weird movie. I think it's telling that I don't even remember you mentioning the titular cat anywhere in that plot synopsis. 
but it's in there. Yeah, the um, cat comes up because Vitus has a phobia of cats, and the cat really just comes in when we need to stop Vitus from killing Polzig too early. Yeah, there's a scene where we're told Vitus has killed it, but then it keeps showing up later in the movie. Cats have nine lives, Ben. Right. And, like, Vitus's phobia of cats is never fully explained. There's a lot of things in this movie that are actually never fully explained. <laughs> the black cat has the unique flavor of the utterly bizarre hints of sex and sadism and Satanism. Um, <laughs> well, not hints of Satanism. It's quite blatant about that. Right. It's a film that if you told me it was an indie movie from the 60s, I would believe you. But it's a Studio A picture from the 30s, which is what makes it so weird to watch. There's almost like a cognitive dissonance where you can't quite believe what you're seeing on the screen, knowing, you know, where and when this movie is from. Yeah, and I think the score slash soundtrack plays a really big role in that. I mean, like, there's this great part where Karloff is just going at the organ mm -hmm. with the... Toccata and Fugue. Yeah, it's, it's great. But there's a lot of library tracks that are reused throughout and reused repeatedly, just, like, on repeat to the point, like, it, it's tropey. If it wasn't for this film's, I guess, production value, the talent, the writing, like, really the look of it... And, yeah. and the acting. Amazing cinematography, amazing set design. Without those things, this would definitely feel like that stereotypical B-movie. Because you have that, like... Everyone knows this, like, knows this tune, but that stereotypical romantic music. Yeah. That is what is played throughout this movie when it's with the Allisons. It's like the Allison theme. There's also, like, a lot of library music that's used... You know, as you're saying, exactly where you expect it to be, right? Like, the music that's played, you know, the morning of after the accident is that very sort of classic, you know, morning classical music. And there's a lot of classical music tracks here that, um, if you've ever seen Hexen, you'd be familiar with, that are classical music tracks that are very traditionally associated with horror or spookiness. But they're all used fairly well, honestly, in terms of their integration with the dialogue, and the movie. And what's really neat is that the score isn't 100% library tracks. Hmm. There's unique original music here, too. And in fact, this movie has, you know, a beginning-to-end score. It's occasionally maybe a little too much, almost. There are times where you kind of <laughs> wish it would quiet down. Yeah. But it is a mix of original music and these traditional pieces, some of which are even, like, source music, like... Some of that creepy classical music I was talking about gets played, like, as a record in the background during a scene, right? Like, there's a mix of whether it's diegetic or non-diegetic, too. Yeah, and I think, like, we know that this movie was very successful mm -hmm. at the box office. So it's almost a case of, like, yes, this becomes a tired trope or a stereotype later on in terms of the use of music, but this movie is using it Genuinely? Yes, as opposed to ironically. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about something in some depth before we analyze more particulars of this film. And that is the way that this movie was cut up and the effect that reshoots and re-edits had on it. That it is a victim of this is kind of obvious in hindsight once you know what to look for. There's rather jarring edits 
throughout. There are shots that have clearly been reordered to try and imply different story events than they maybe were originally shot for. There's voiceover in places that's clearly there to patch up holes. And there are also subplots and character arcs that kind of just vanish, as well as key events in the film that happen off screen. Mm Mm-hmm. What you're kind of left with watching it is the feeling of a film that has been edited around its plot. You don't so much see the story as you see everything else. And ultimately what survives in your impression of it most strongly are the performances of Karloff and Lugosi as these kind of embattled rivals. Their rivalry is kind of the thing that survives the strongest, and all the other elements are kind of what ends up in a weird patchwork around it that gives this film a very bizarre fever logic feel to it. <laughs> For me, it, it's kind of like the Allisons don't have the full picture. They don't understand what the heck is going on. Yeah, they have less of a picture than the audience does. They never really learn what any of the backstory between these two men are. Yeah, so I feel like, obviously not intentionally because they didn't plan to do these reshoots, but... It gives the audience a bit of that feeling as well, in mm-hmm. a neat way. Yeah, there's more going on than you know about, or can ever know about, which is interesting. I want to digress for a moment, if I may, to be allowed to kind of guess at where and what the biggest alterations were. Okay. And this is sort of taking from that list that I read before the film of, like, what is reportedly to have been cut, mm-hmm. as well as just kind of inferences based on watching the film and using kind of my own knowledge of narrative structure and filmmaking to kind of piece together what's missing here. One of the things I had read was that apparently Joan transforms into the cat. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't think Joan transforms into the cat. I do think she was meant to have some kind of psychic connection to it. Yeah, because the dialogue says something about black cats being embodied of like evil or death or something, and that the spirit goes to the closest thing, and it gets killed off screen at the same time that Joan walks by. Yeah, it first appears right before she kind of walks into a scene in a narcotic-induced trance. Uh, This is soon after her injury, the night they arrive, and Vitus has given her some some painkillers, some opioids, and although dialogue tells us that Vetus kills it. We don't actually see the death of the cat. Uh, he sort of throws a knife at it off screen, and then it kind of goes like, Wah! and then like David Manners has a line where he's like, oh, you killed it. But we don't actually see that. It does continue to appear later in the film, and this is explained by Perlzig saying, like, cats have nine lives and, and this kind of stuff. Immediately after this scene is a scene where Vetus tries to suggest that the narcotics used to treat Joan may have opened her to a kind of mystic awareness. Peter says, oh, that's a bunch of supernatural baloney. And Pelagosi gets this amazing line where he says, supernatural, perhaps, but baloney? No. (laughs) Like, it's (laughs) hilarious. Um, But there's no further use or suggestion of this in the finished film at all. Um, Joan has no more weird trances, No one ever talks about supernatural, mystic anything for the rest of the movie. Except perhaps that the house has an aura of death. Mm -hmm. That's the closest. However, one of the times the cat appears again, like in a lot of the movie, Pearlzig just has the cat, like he's a Bond villain. Yeah. But one of the scenes where it appears again is it runs into Joan's room 
right before she meets Karin, who then dies off screen, uh, which to me continues to suggest there was some kind of connection between the cat and Joan originally. Okay. Some sort of psychic link. It's probably a safe bet that the death of the cat, the death of Karin, uh, and Perlzig's death were all originally shown on screen to some extent, judging by the way they've been edited around. Now, there's something to be said for the effectiveness in a horror film of, you know, things happening off screen and letting the audience's imagination do the work for them. But it's sort of just clear to me from the way things are edited that they originally intended to show more of these things. The other thing is I think that Perlzig's exact methods of murder and how they intersect with his Satanism and his necrophilia were likely more clear originally. There's enough pieces that you can start to form theories of how they all fit together, but nobody ever comes out and really shows you or explains anything. What seems evident is that the women he desires are sacrificed in these rituals, and then they're embalmed and kept in the display cases afterward. And that second Karen, uh, daughter Karen, died maybe earlier than intended because she found out about her father. There's a sequence of scenes um, around the time where, just before Peter gets thrown in the dungeon and Joan is locked in her room. It's these scenes where uh, it's Vetus's servant, actually, who knocks Peter out and attacks him, and then he takes Joan to her room, and then right after, Vetus sort of visits her afterwards. And I think these are some of the strongest evidence of where the reshoots went. I suspect that what originally happened is, for some reason, Vetus made some sort of deal with Polzig to have Joan, and originally his visit to her room was to rape her. Mm. Um, because we know that a scene where Lugosi raped her was one of the cuts. Uh, and I think it was replaced with the scene where he visits her and is instead much more protective. When this was changed, it was done in order to make Lugosi's character more virtuous. And because of this change, they had to add this bizarre scene before all this happens, and also during his visit to Joan, where Vetus tells his servant to obey Perlzig while they bide their time, which is in order to make the scene where it's Vetus's servant that attacks Peter make sense. Yeah. And ultimately, that explanation doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, why would you tell your servant to obey your enemy for the time being? But it's just kind of like, it seems to me like that's a rationalization because they still had this footage they had to have make sense. There's other evidence kind of of the remnants of this plot line in my mind. Uh, there's Vetus's fixation on Joan early in the film where it seems like maybe it's a romantic or lustful fixation, but then the rest of the movie recontextualizes it as being protective. There's also the way that in some scenes she seems terrified of him and in others not. And she has no reason to be terrified of him ever in the finished film. There's also the fact that Peter kills Vetus at the end with very little provocation. The way it's edited is to try and make you think that, you know, Peter comes in and he's confused about Vetus's role and, you know, shoots him by accident. But there's maybe something there where maybe Peter had some more motivation to shoot Vetus at the end. Mm -hmm. Also... Uh, and this really stood out to me. When Joan is grabbed out of her room by the satanic cultists, uh, and she's taken to the ritual, uh, we hear her scream. 
but we don't actually see a close-up on her. We don't see her saying this dialogue. It's clearly been taken in and, and laid over top of this scene. And what she actually screams is, Vetus, please no, don't, let go of me, please. And it seems likely to me that this is a line from the rape scene that's been repurposed because it's clear that it's not Vetus grabbing her in this scene. It's two of the cultists, because we see that Vetus is downstairs and in totally different clothes when she's carried by these same two cultists to the ritual. Mm -hmm. The satanic ritual uh, shows the most obvious signs of tampering. It has very bizarre, quick cuts. And they are effective in their own way, um, but these cuts alternate between extreme close-ups of faces and big wide shots uh, with very little medium shots. So it tends to obfuscate where the characters exactly are in position to one another and what everyone's actually doing in the scene, which to me shows signs that the order of shots and the order of action has maybe been rearranged around. And then the way they've covered it is by getting rid of those sort of glue shots that would have held it together. I mean, it's effective because it, for the context of that scene, mm -hmm. uh, as like I guess, would that be a kind of like lampshading? Yeah, guess? yeah. So like it works as is, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's something where you know I think the way this movie was chopped up and re put back together makes the movie work simply because fear of the unknown and that sort of thing and imagination work in a horror movie's favor, but it's still maybe not something you would have intentionally done on purpose. It's likely to me that this ritual scene went on longer and was probably just more explicit, and that's what they're cutting around. The key moment that causes the distraction that allows Vitus to rescue Joan is one of the cultists turning, and she's turning away from the pulpit and the altar. She's not turning to look at the sacrifice. She's turning in the other direction, and she sees something, which we do not see. There's no reverse shot. She screams, and then she faints, and that causes all the attendees to gather around her, which allows Vitus to grab Joan and escape. And that's the last we see of any of the cultists. Perlzig chases after Vitus, and the next time the characters are upstairs, all the cultists are gone. So what happened? What did the woman see? The finished film furnishes no answers at all, and it seems clear that something was cut out at this point. It has been suggested by some of the research I saw that the Satanists got what they wished for and that Lucifer showed up and that that was the end of them. If any of these guesses have merit uh, about the, say, actual presence of Satan in the movie or a psychic link between Joan and the cat, the removal of these scenes end up basically removing all the supernatural elements from the story, which leaves in its place a bizarre but very human tale of revenge and trauma. And I think that's the reason why, even if a lot was maybe cut out of this movie, it still works, because what's left is the part of the story that's relatable because it's about human emotion, and that's really the heart of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are really good theories. I wonder if, like, especially in that scene for the satanic ritual, mm -hmm. if the reason why these odd cuts and edits blend in, I guess, to the rest of the feel of the movie is because of the quality of the cinematography. Yeah, for sure. 
if you're an avid listener, you know I love that shadow. And I was beaming when they first arrived to the house. The house servant lets Pearlzig know that Vitus is here. And we see him, like, sit up as if he's, like, the mummy. And he turns on a lamp, and it's just, like, this silhouette. It's just so great. And, like, that kind of stylistic lighting is used throughout. And it's also why, like, you made a comment about some of the cuts being indicated due to the voiceover sequence, mm-hmm. where this happens right when Pearlzig has explained to Vitus that, you know, this is your, your wife embalmed on this display case, um, and your daughter is dead, uh, and he has this really creepy monologue about death and how mm-hmm. we know death and let's play a game about death. We get a first-person perspective with the camera moving back through these corridors back to the spiral staircase back up. Yeah. And it it works and is super creepy and super memorable. It's a great sequence. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the film itself is incredibly well made. And it's clear that with the reshoots, they weren't just like, shit, get it together, guys. We gotta, we just gotta get the shit done. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, how do we make this just as stylistic and maybe even more so? Yeah, a really good piece of evidence up for that point is that um, apparently before the reshoots, there was just Karen and daughter Karen. What was added in the reshoots was all the other women mm. in the embalmed display cases, showing that Prozig is a repeat offender, as it were. Um, so it's it's clear that you know in taking stuff out, they also put stuff in to sort of band aid over what was gone. Yeah, but it doesn't feel overstuffed. No, no, it's it's pretty lean. If anything, I could have another half hour in this movie easily. Like, it's an hour long, and if I could have a longer version, I would love to. Yeah. And the way they they shoot around things is effective. Um, You know, you were talking about the use of shadow, and I was saying that the editing makes it clear we were originally supposed to see Prolzig's skin getting removed, but because we're just shooting around it, all we end up seeing in the movie is shadows and silhouettes, and it's still very evocative. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really happy that we brought in the history of Austria-Hungary mm-hmm. in the context setting. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's embedded in this movie. Mm-hmm. Not just because Prolzig and Vitus are old frenemies, but the way that the driver is talking about the countryside. The way that the police, <laughs> when they come in to investigate, Peter mentions that, yeah, we were heading to this this little village for a honeymoon and the head police officer is like, oh yes, that town, it's so great. And one of his lieutenants is like, that town? Nah, my hometown. My hometown's the best. Mm-hmm. And just kind of this mocking of nationalism mm-hmm. is is fun. In, in the context setting of explaining, like, the reason I went so far back with, like, that first... It's not even the first, but, like, the first revolution I mentioned in, like, 1848 is because all of this is, like, these hostilities between ethnic groups growing and dividing people for so long to the point where, like, you don't really know why your hometown is the best. You just know that your hometown's the best because when you want to sport, you can sport, Mm -hmm. you know? It feels like that's brought into this movie 
because it has this, there's that aura around the physical land. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is making any sense, but it's it's just the way that that history is baked in. The fact that this battle took place here, it was particularly gruesome. When we see the establishing shot of the house, we have this little graveyard that's in the foreground. Mm-hmm. So you, you get a sense of, like, no, a ton of people died here. And if they lived, they were like Lugosi, who got taken to a Russian POW camp. He describes how the soul was killed from you or destroyed from you in that camp. Yeah. And how he's going to do the same to Polzig. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the actual history of this place goes so far back. I think you're you're really on to something here, Sarah, because the thing that you you learn as you watch this movie is that like Vertigast and Prolzig hate each other. But they've also known each other forever. You keep calling them frenemies and that's such an apt description because, you know, what makes their enmity so entertaining in a way is the clear respect and kinship that they still feel. You know, Vertigast always addresses Prozig by his old title. He always calls him Engineer Prozig. And Prozig lies to Vertigast about the fate of his wife and child, rather than rub his nose in it, you know? Vertigast has come here to kill Prozig for his betrayal at the fort, um, and also to find out what he has done with his wife and child. But Prozig doesn't laugh a maniacal laugh and say like I killed your wife and married your daughter he lies about it he says you know your wife's dead your child's dead there's no one here there's a suggestion that as awful as Prozig is you know because he's a necrophilic satanist traitor um, he might feel guilt for his actions uh, his actions during the war and his actions now there's that kind of you know because otherwise why lie about it Mm mm-hmm and why come back to this place? Yes. If I just explains, like, I've followed your trail from, like, South America, Spain, whatever, like, America at one point, mm-hmm. and he's come back to build this creepy house on top of this fort. Yeah, and it's, you know, described that, like, after the war, he went on to become one of Austria's most famous architects, and, you know, he clearly studied modernism in America, and he did all these things. And yeah, he's come back here. So what drew him back here? In contrast, Vertigast, who views his cause as just, who is portrayed as being just, has no guilt for his heinousness. Now, if my guess that he raped Joan in the original version is correct, that's an act of heinousness. That's not in the movie anymore, but what is left is still his skinning of Prozig at the end. And as justified as that is, you know, Lugosi really portrays Vertigast as kind of going past a line at a certain point in the kind of joy that Vertigast takes from his revenge, a joy that we never really see Prozig take from his evil acts. So what you're left with is like a villain who knows that he's in the wrong and a hero who can't see that he's crossed a line. And I mean, this is probably something that was a stronger element before the cuts and the reshoots where Vetus was made more clearly heroic. And, you know, Prozig is definitely evil, the way that Karloff has that wicked smile and that smug attitude in this movie. But it's clear that, like, their enmity is so complex, and it has so many layers to it, too, because when you first hear about it, it's just, oh, 
Perlzig betrayed them at the battle, and that led to Vertigus going to this POW camp. That should be enough, really, for a revenge story. But no, turns out Perlzig stole his wife. Turns out Perlzig always wanted his wife and was already his rival before the war. Turns out Perlzig took his daughter, too, like, and then married his, like, there's layers upon layers, and I think where I think your point comes in is ultimately Perlzig and Vertigast are Austria and Hungary. Mm-hmm. You know, with this thing of this symbiotic relationship where they've been together for so long that you can't really break them apart, but there's so much blood and so much enmity on either side, and it goes back so far that you, you know, every time you try to explain what the current conflict is, you have to dig back into the history yet again, further and further and further to try and get to the root of it. Yeah. Thanks for putting my rambling into thematic goodness. No, I mean, I think, I don't think you were (laughs) rambling. I think you were totally correct. Mm. And, you know, you had the one plus one. Um, We just needed to get to the equals two part, right? Yeah. The fact that we have this, like, film and the historical context of the actual countries adding this layer, it also makes me think about Lugosi and Karloff's um, (laughs) rivalry. Rivalry. Which is also, of course, another layer to this movie. Yeah, but it ends with them having a bit more respect for one one another, as you said. That's at least a positive outcome of this frenemies. (laughs) I think Perlzig and Vertigast are almost um, embodiments of Austria and Hungary. What is also clear is that Peter and Joan are a commentary on America's role in the First World War. Mm -hmm. As ever, a David Manners character in a universal horror movie is totally useless. (laughs) Um, You know, he gets taken out by the butler and thrown in, like, an easy-to-escape trap that he's just sort of, like, helplessly unconscious in for, like, the entire third act. And when he finally gets out, what does he do? He shoots the hero. Yeah. (laughs) However, this time, and I think this is why you identified this as the best version of that David Manners role. This time, his uselessness is thematic. It's built into the story. Peter and Joan are Americans who blunder into a conflict between two Europeans. They never learn or understand the full background or the stakes of this conflict. Their very presence escalates the conflict. Their efforts to help actively make things worse, and yet they are the party which emerges victorious, unscathed, (laughs) and almost entirely untraumatized from their experience. That's why that epilogue scene is there, to show you that they're able to walk away and just resume their lives with a smile. This is a movie where um, Edgar Ulmer is turning to America and saying, you have no fucking clue what happened in World War I. You just waltzed in at the end of it and then got to go home and had no suffering from it, whereas the rest of Europe continued to suffer from it for decades afterwards to the point where it's 1934 and they've got Hitler in Germany now. That's a really, really good point. Kind of like reverse Casablanca. (laughs) (laughs) So Karloff and Lugosi are both really good in this movie. Oh, they're so good. I, I just love being able to see Karloff act. Yeah. Yeah, and like not just do the shambly thing. Not just, like... We got to see his acting ability a bit in The Mummy because he's bringing 
this really neat kind of presence and weight to these lines that, if done by someone else, might not have that kind of scathing, like, <laughs> fuck you, oppressors, type of quality. And then we got to see a little bit more at the beginning of the ghoul when he, before he dies and becomes this shambling mummy again. And then here, it's just, like, fully there. And it makes me want to see his dramatic roles, Mm -hmm. his non-horror roles, because I want to see just, like... I really just want to hear his voice more. Oh, yeah, he has a great voice. such a good voice. And, like, I don't even question the British accent with him being Austrian. (laughs) Like, whatever. It's definitely Karloff's best horror performance so far. And I think I think you used a great word. Uh, you used the word scathing, and that really describes this performance too. There's such a sneer behind the stuff that he says, and he's so good at that. Like, you could really see Boris Karloff like playing like a imperial officer in a Star Wars movie, really. Yeah. Easily, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, it's yeah. It's he's a great villain. He's a great villain in this movie. Um, the costume and the hair f- and the makeup for him is so. Amazing. The hair is a bit much, but it's, it's still great. It's fucking great. Uh, and he's got this heavy black eyeliner. And, and lipstick. Yeah, and he's his like pajamas are like have like a button up like military sort of flap to them. And like he goes around in these like Aleister Crowley satanic robes and like oh man. It's it's really great. Lagosi. The thing that I realized watching this movie, he should have been an actor in tragedies, not horror. Mm. Lugosi is so meant for tragedy. All the lines in this movie, the few moments in Dracula where he kind of gets to play that, you know, even looking forward to Bride of the Atom, the Ed Wood movie that he did, whenever Lugosi got to tap into some kind of tragedy for his characters, it got so good. And I think... What's evident is that he invested much of his own tragic background into his portrayal of uh, Vetus. His own history. Yes. From Hungary. Mm-hmm. Being exiled from there. Yeah, I mean, it's tragically ironic that the only time he was able to ever return to Hungary was in a fictional version of Hungary. Mm-hmm. You know, he he had to flee when he had picked the wrong side in a revolution, and he never went back. You know, by the time he was successful enough to afford to go back, it was politically not a good idea for him to go back. And by the time it was politically okay probably for him to go back, he was no longer financially able to. So here, you know, seeing scenes where the movie's set in Hungary, you know, when they get off the train and they're just at that little train station for a bit and there's Hungarian signs on the windows and, you know, they get into the bus and stuff and there's some parts of the movie where he speaks Hungarian to, like, minor characters, to his servant or to the police or whatever. And there's just something about knowing that he could never go back there in reality that adds yet another layer to this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he finds out that his wife has died and thinks that his daughter is dead, he he does such a good performance of, like, subdued anguish. And then you get the, the scene where he finds out that his daughter is dead. You know, he learns that his daughter was alive and then learns that she is dead. By you know, discovering her body. Yeah, exactly. And that scene's so effective. Yeah. I feel like we could just keep going about... <laughs> 
their performances just being so good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're really what makes this movie kind of worth seeing. I mean, there's other stuff in this movie that's great that we've talked about, the cinematography, the set design, but really it's those two guys. This is sort of neither here nor there. When you do the math in this movie, based on all the history that they give you, you know, of how many years ago did this happen and that happen and the other thing, you come to the unmistakable conclusion that in addition to being, like, a necrophiliac and a Satanist, uh, Prolzig's also a pedophile. Yes. Because... Grossness with the daughter. Yeah, because um, daughter Karen, who, like, it's not really clear, like, okay, there's an implication here, and nothing's ever really set out right, but the fact that um, Prolzig stole Vertigast's wife, Karen, married her... And then he tells Vertigast that she died, like, two years after the war ended. And the war ended, like, 15 years ago. And and the daughter, who he's currently married to, doesn't look like she can be much older than, you know, mid-20s. She's very, you know, young, beautiful, sexy, blonde. You know, the first time we see her is lounged out in bed in negligee. So the math suggests that she was underage when he switched from wife Karen to daughter Karen. And I feel like she, like, obviously there's a controlling relationship here, mm-hmm. but when she tells Joan that, yeah, he was married to my mom and now he's married to me. Yeah, she doesn't see that as weird at all. Yeah, and Joan's like, what the fuck? Yeah, so it suggests that she was young enough at the time that, like, she was has groomed. groomed for it. What I'm unsure about is, you know, the math on it, makes me wonder, it's weird to me that the mom and the daughter have the same name. I wonder about, did Pearlzig start just calling her Karen after the first Karen died? Like, oh, now you're Karen. There's a lot of little things like that in the cracks of this movie, you know, that you can start wondering about if you go digging, I guess. Yeah, I don't really want to think about that shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, we talked about the cinematography. We talked about the score. One last just sort of filmmaking production thing I want to say I love about this movie is the set design, Mm. uh, which is modernist in style, hence Sarah's Howard Rourke joke. Yeah, it's not just the fact that Karloff goes around carrying a cat that makes him feel like a Bond villain. Mm -hmm, Yeah. For me, the reason the modernist set design is so appreciated is precisely because this is exactly the sort of story that could have been set in the standard gothic old dark house and we've seen that so many times already by now that the move to the modernist style helps all the old tropes of you know the dungeon in the basement and the secret passages and everything feel new again instead of oh this because they're happening you know in a new setting it's the same tropes like in as far as the script is concerned it could have been a gothic old house there's nothing that says it had to be this way. So it's such a great choice just to make things feel fresh. But also calling back, because the stark angles of a modern design harkens to German Expressionism. Yes, absolutely. What is interesting, this is a modernist house designed by the architect who is responsible for the massacre in the ground that he builds upon. Yes. And, it like, we've talked about him coming back and and not really truly being able to escape this event. But perhaps 
with him building this modernist house, it's trying to show him still trying to escape it. Mm-hmm. Just still trying to escape the past. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the basement dungeon part of the house is still clearly... The, the military format. Yeah, the remains of the old fort, because he leads Vertigast through it and goes like, oh yeah, here's where the guns were, you remember <laughs> that. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's rank. Yeah. What are you thinking? Five. What does that mean? Uh, that's where I would rank it. I just have a spot picked out. I don't have a range. Okay, so going above Invisible Man? Right, but below Island of Lost Souls. Primarily... Because, like, Invisible Man's fucking great. But primarily because this movie goes to some, like, weird, bizarre, button-pushing places that Invisible Man doesn't. They both have humorous moments, but I think that this is the better horror movie of the two. There's more horror here. I think, you know, Invisible Man's probably a better put-together movie. It has better flow, but in terms of the horror, I think this movie takes, takes the cake over it. You don't think the fact that a lot of this stuff is implied, not even counting the, like, stuff in shadow, but the necrophilia, the pedophilia, mm. like, this stuff is all implied, like, you have to go digging for it. You don't see that as a negative. I think, I think it is a weakness. It's why I don't think it's better than Island of Lost Souls, which, to me, has, is, like, almost weirdly comparable, because there's something weirdly comparable about Moreau and Prolzig and their compounds that get destroyed at the end of the movie while our characters have to, like, escape. But I think Island of Lost Souls feels like it goes for it in the same way that this movie does, but goes for it without having to pull its punches, without having to talk around it the way this movie kind of has to talk around its subject matter. And as much as, like, it's part of the point of the movie that Peter and Joan walk away from this, like, ha ha ha, well, on with our honeymoon. What a weird thing that just happened. Ha ha ha. There's something about the fact that Island of Lost Souls ends with those characters really traumatized and fucked up that leaves you feeling the impact a little more. Leaves you feeling shaken. Mm hmm. Cool. What about you? Where, what did you think in terms of where this movie should go? I was definitely thinking this top area. I really wanted to talk about where this movie fit in relation to Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah, because Karloff and Lugosi. Yeah. I agree with you with where we want to put it, but we can still have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% sold on it being above Invisible Man. If you want Invisible Man above it, I think we can have that discussion. I guess that what I mean is, like, should this go above Frankenstein and Dracula... I'm torn because we've talked in the past about the iconic nature of those two films. This film is capitalizing on the legacy <laughs> of those two movies and is capitalizing on it very well. Yeah, it's capitalizing on the rivalry caused by those two movies. Yeah. Like, I mean, audiences of the time might not have known the dire straits Lugosi's career was in, but I think audiences of the time would have been aware of the notion that Karloff and Lugosi were rivals and would have known that going in. Because this movie's almost based around that idea. Yeah. The way that this movie takes these tropes that are now <laughs> established, Frankenstein's castle, David Manners, <laughs> and turns them a little bit, maybe not so much on their head, but does something new with them. Yeah, it uses them 
now that they're, you know, those two earlier movies put the tools in the toolbox, this movie's come along and found uses for them. Yeah. Right? I think what's significant is how tepid Frankenstein and Dracula feel to me in comparison to this movie. Um, how daring and bold this movie feels in comparison to those films. Also, if the draw of Frankenstein is Karloff and the draw of Dracula is Lugosi, if they're the best things in those movies, and then the draw of this movie is the two of them together, both of them give better performances in this movie than they did in either of those two movies. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that the director uses the camera to do heavy lifting for the storytelling mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in this movie as compared to definitely Dracula because it's practically a stage play mm -hmm. for the most part besides the Transylvania parts. And, like, there's some parts in Frankenstein, but this one keeps it in the horror genre. And I'm thinking specifically of the shot when Joan is up and in her narcotic trance mm -hmm. and Peter goes to her to, like, oh. comfort her and we get this weird shot where the foreground is this, like, statue of this woman leaning back or whatever, and Pearl Zig's hand grasps the statue right as Peter grasps Joan. Yeah. And that's when you know they aren't getting out of this house. <laughs> yeah, and there's another scene later where, you know, when they're having the chess game and they're talking about Joan and Vertigas says, like, oh, you want her. And Perlzig, you know, is sort of admitting it. And as he's doing that, he's, like, stroking the queen of the chess pieces. There's a lot of really good filmmaking in this movie in terms of using mise-en-scene and symbolism to tell the story and make it clear to you the things that they can't quite come out and say. Yeah. To a level that reminds me of Jekyll and Hyde. Mm -hmm. The way that there are things going on in that movie. So... That's all to say that I'm happy to put this number five. Yeah, I think if this movie hadn't had to cut things out and hadn't had to pull back on some things, um, who knows? Maybe it would have been worse. Maybe the ellipses in the story of this film are part of what gives it its effect. But I have a feeling like if I could see a more complete version of this movie, it might go even higher. On this list, it might rival Jekyll and Hyde, but as it is, it's not so much that we don't get to see those things, it's the way that the end result of getting rid of them leaves the movie feeling choppy in places and feeling a little like, oh, some, I can tell something's missing there, that makes it not quite, you know, top five material, but definitely this top ten. Sneaks into the top five. T sneaks into, yes, <laughs> bottom of the top five. Yeah. Cool. So going in at number five is The Black Cat from 1934, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films in the top five, if you'd like to take a listen to those. At our website, you can also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals for where we've ranked previous films. But you can also submit concerns, questions, or just random thoughts that come into your brain. <laughs> you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday. We are hosted on SoundCloud and available on iTunes. And you can grab us through our RSS feed on whatever podcasting app you like to use. 
If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, it's one of the things that helps other people find the show. And also, we like feedback. You can also comment on the SoundCloud tracks or just tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow. So if there's someone that you know who might be into a niche podcast about old classic horror movies talked about in a very determinedly systematic matter, uh, let them know about the show. Mm-hmm. Also, right now, there's a podcast called You Must Remember This, which goes into the history of the film industry and the crazy things that happened then. But right now, they're doing a series on Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and their rivalry through the ages. So if you want to check that out, this film kind of complements that a lot. Yeah, for sure. And they're able to go a lot more in-depth on these things than we are because... We're talking about the films primarily and then using this background information as context. So if you want to go more in-depth on that stuff, they're a great resource. Definitely. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, we are watching what is more or less our final pre-code American horror film. Oh. It is Black Moon from Columbia Pictures, starring Faye Ray. Cool. From Black Cat to Black Moon. Exactly. Nice. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.